This episode is brought to you by Loyola University, Maryland's Master of Theological Studies, offering a rigorous and rewarding education with small classes and renowned faculty. Learn more and apply at loyola.edu theology. Again, that is loyola.edu theology. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And and only Olga Segura this week. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. Zach Davis. No Zach. We so miss I'm, him very much. We do miss him. I'm, I'm wondering if I can fill into his like joke shoes, clown shoes, and try to be the one who makes <laughs> listeners laugh. I'm wondering if I want you to try. Yeah, let me not. Let me not. I'll let him hold that crown. <laughs> uh, but you are going to have to fill in his shoes and tell the listeners what we're drinking this week, Olga. So this week we are drinking rum and Coke. Yeah, it's a fun drink. It's, Why not? Yeah, we haven't had it yet on the show. So cheers. And who are we talking to? This week, we're talking with Representative Ro Khanna. He is the Democratic representative for California's 17th Congressional District in Silicon Valley. And he is one of four Hindus in Congress right now. Yeah, and we thought it would be a very timely time to talk to Representative Khanna. Um, This past weekend, President Trump attended a rally in Houston with the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi. Um, he He is a controversial prime minister in India. He's a Hindu nationalist, and he's been um, criticized for um, human rights abuses in Kashmir and for his role in escalating tensions in Pakistan. Um, So that's something that uh, Representative Khanna has an interesting perspective on, but also as um, someone who's representing Silicon Valley, he brings an interesting uh, view to you know, the tech sector, which is coming under uh, a lot of criticism right now for its role um, in the public discourse. Right. So we talked to him about all of this and more. Stay tuned. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes from Brebeuf Jesuit Preparatory School, which had been sanctioned by the Archdiocese of Indianapolis um, and had had its permissions to say school-wide mass taken away after um, it became public that one of the teachers at that school had been married to a man. Right. And we reported on this situation back in episode 109. But a quick recap. The teacher at the school is Leighton Payne Elliott. And he after it came out that his civil marriage that he entered in 2017 was made public on social media, the archdiocese said that the school should not rehire him. Rebuff refused because they said, hey, the teacher doesn't is not a religion teacher. So so this shouldn't affect his position at the school. The archdiocese retorted, saying that regardless of the subject being taught, all ministers in their professional and private lives must convey and be supportive of Catholic Church teaching. So they decreed that the school could no longer call itself Catholic. And because of this, um, they were no longer allowed to have like their traditional school wide mass at the beginning of the year. They could still have smaller daily masses, um, but they going forward couldn't call themselves Catholic. Right. And following this decree from the archdiocese, admin at the school actually appealed the decision with the Vatican. And just this week, the Congregation for Catholic Education has temporarily suspended the decree. So the school can now once again resume its masses. Right. So it can it can celebrate the Eucharist, um, but only temporarily. This is not this is not the final decision from the Vatican. It'll the Congregation for Education will have to make a final decision. Um 
So we'll see what happens going forward. What's the next story, Olga? So a New York diocese has filed for bankruptcy. This is the Diocese of Rochester in New York. They just filed for bankruptcy in the face of new sexual misconduct lawsuits. And a lot of people are wondering, why is this happening now? Yeah, so this year, New York implemented the Child Victims Act, which opened a one-year window for alleged victims to bring cases against the diocese um, that would usually fall under the statute of limitations. So this means people who were previously prevented from suing dioceses um, because their abuse happened or their alleged abuse, abuse happened decades ago now have a chance over the next year to make their case in court. Right. And since August 14th, which is when this window was opened in New York, 400 cases have been filed in Rochester alone. And other dioceses in the state are also facing financial pressure and are considering whether bankruptcy is the best way forward. Right. And this is not a new tactic for Catholic dioceses. Um, since 2002, uh, 20 dioceses have filed for bankruptcy in the face of sex abuse lawsuits. Um, and this doesn't mean when a when a diocese declares bankruptcy. It does not mean that, like, all the churches are going to close and they're going to sell off their school buildings. It's um, it's part of, you know, the law where now a, a federal bankruptcy judge will supervise how the assets are divided up among the victims who enter into settlements with the diocese, along with other creditors who the church owes money to. We wanted to bring you this story as another update in the sex abuse crisis, and we'll continue to bring you guys updates on the complicated financial aspect of the sex abuse crisis. What's our next story, Ashley? This past Sunday, a mob descended on St. Anne de Detroit, the second oldest continuously operating church in the United States. I did not know that. Um, And thankfully, they were not there to cause trouble to celebrate the Eucharist. Yeah, this was a really interesting story and really fun. The event was the 49th gathering of Detroit Mass Mob, which is part of a national movement that aims to pack churches on a specific date. Now, this movement started back in Buffalo in 2010 when Christopher Byrd noticed that on any given Sunday, only about 50 people would show up to the Basilica for Mass. Right. So he took to Facebook to encourage people to show up to Mass on a specific date at a specific time. Um, And the first time he did this, back in 2010, 300 people showed up for mass and the mass mob movement was born and it spread across the uh, Midwestern states where there there are a lot of big churches that, uh, you know, used to be populated and serving big Catholic populations and now are kind of empty. Um, And it's been really successful, especially in Detroit, um, where on some weekends they've attracted as many as a thousand people. Wow. That the thought of being in a church that's that full is insane. Yeah. So like, I, I really like the story because I have often, you know, anyone who's Catholic has been in a church that yep. is basically <laughs> empty on Sunday and it can be um, kind of depressing. And I've, I've often thought like, you know, it's really great that there is like, you know, like my parish gives offers like five different times you can go. You can go on Saturday evening or like at 7 a.m. or 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. or 6 p.m. Right. And it's great that there's that flexibility, especially for, you know, families with young children. They can pick the one that works with their schedule for young adults like me who love go, being able to go like late on Sunday. Like, mm-hmm. I love that. But I often think like, you know, if there was just one mass on Sunday, like <laughs> it wouldn't be empty. It would be packed because, you know, there are people going to all these different masses. Um, so this just seems like a great way to like, you know, keep the flexibility. Mm-hmm. But like every once in a while, like pack the house and have that feeling. Right, right. And I think it's also a really great opportunity to evangelize. It really makes the idea of going to mass, if you are you call it a mass mob, it just makes it even more exciting. And I think that's what a lot of people want from our church. Yeah. 
But I also want my regular pew and to have the pew to myself. So. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> What's our next story, Olga? So Dutch nuns have opened up a new cemetery for natural burials. Now, these are Trappist sisters in the Netherlands who recently opened a public cemetery for all natural burials. Right. So six years ago, these sisters bought land and they wanted to build a Roman Catholic cemetery. Um, but they kind of ran into regulatory hurdles trying to do that. Um, the fact that they weren't a parish made it more difficult. So they decided to make it a public cemetery um, and a natural one at that. So that means that they don't, um, you know, they don't have vaults to put Mm -hmm. bodies in. Like bodies are put in biodegradable caskets and into the soil. Um, And this doesn't disturb nature, but still has like the feel of a cemetery. Right, right. And right now the cemetery only has four people buried there. But the nuns hope that, you know, these natural burials become like a really good alternative for what can be burials can be very, very burdensome for families and expensive, very expensive. So Abbas Julian, who runs the who runs the cemetery, said that, you know, we welcome every guest like Christ and we don't want to be large landowners. We just want to share everything we have in a really sustainable way. So this story brings up like interesting questions about cemeteries because uh, there there are a lot of rules for Catholics. Like you can't just get buried anywhere. You can't just get cremated and have your ashes spread anywhere. There are specific rules. So right. we kind of you know we got went down curious. A, yeah, we went down a really kind of morbid rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. But we discovered that back in 2016, the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith actually released instructions for how to bury someone. And for example, while the church continues to prefer burying people in the ground, it now accepts cremation as an option. But it forbids the scattering of ashes and the growing practice of keeping these remains at home. Right. And I actually really loved I, I read the the instructions and I like them because in a way they're ve- they're very body positive. Like they take mm-hmm. our physical lives very seriously. And it's not like a superstition that like, oh, no, if you burn the body, then you won't get lifted up to heaven. Like, obviously. Right. But it, it takes seriously that like we are we are sacrament like sacraments are important and rituals are important. And by burying someone in the ground uh, with their name attached to it, it's you're, you're saying that this is an individual loved and named by God, and we we pray that they are going to be raised up. Right. Um, yeah. So I just think it's beautiful. Yeah, you put that really beautifully. I like the idea of this being really body positive because I did go into this thinking, well, people should be able to keep these ashes wherever they want to. Like if you mm. lost a father or a mother, you want to keep them close to you. But it's like you said, it's just reminding us that as Christians, we have to, we believe in the resurrection mm. and we have to believe in the importance of these bodies, even though they're gone from, you know, their its earthly state. Yeah. Like it still matters to us, to our entire Christian community. And that's the other thing, Christian community. The part of the instructions mentioned that, like, the reason you shouldn't just put an urn in your living room with the with the ashes of a loved one is that yes they are they're a member of your family but they also belong to the community and the larger communion of saints and everyone else has a, has a right to pray at their grave as well um and i i just i think that's really beautiful amen i really really love that what's our last story ashley okay so this week Pope Francis met with the Italian Union of the Catholic Press, um, and he told them to be bold and to tell the truth at any cost because the words we use as journalists shape the world we live in. Right. And we decided to bring this as not necessarily, it's part of our being frank section, which might not necessarily apply to all of our listeners, but it does apply to people like us who are in Catholic media and who it, it can be very easy for us to fall into 
writing as a brand and writing as how thinking about writing and how it's going to help us. And Pope Francis is just reminding us that our job is to tell the truth at any cost because the work that we do shapes the world that we live in. Right. On top of that, he said that it's really important as journalists to give a voice to those who have none. Um, And, you know, working at America Media and doing Jesuitical, that's what we try to do. Um, We don't always do it perfectly. Sometimes we just like (laughs) talk about our 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 favorite memes. But we do think it's really important to lift up voices in the Catholic Church and outside of it. that are often excluded in other outlets. Right. And it's just, like you said, a wonderful reminder of why we have the show. Joining us via Skype is Representative Ro Khanna. He is currently serving his second term as the Democratic Representative for California's 17th Congressional District in Silicon Valley. Welcome to Jesuitical, Representative. Thanks so much for having me on. I've heard uh, great things about the podcast. That is wonderful. We always get very excited when people have heard of us. So (laughs) first question, in 2017, Hinduism was the third largest faith group represented in Congress. Now it's tied with Islam, and you are one of three Hindus in Congress. How does your faith shape what you do? It's a a great question. I think there are actually four uh, Hindu Americans now in Congress, myself, uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal, Raja Krishnaburthi, and uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, my faith uh, is influenced by my grandfather, Amarnath Vidyalankar. He spent uh, four years in jail with Gandhi uh, in India's independence movement. And Gandhi uh, was deeply influenced by Hinduism. Uh, his belief in Hinduism was one of pluralism, a belief that uh, respected uh, the truth and value in all religions. Uh, He spoke about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, actually, and Jesus Christ being a great teacher of humanity. And he also read the Gita and he read the Quran and he read the Torah. And so uh, I believe that uh, that is the philosophy we need in the 21st century, one that is pluralistic, that respects the planet, that respects all different uh, faiths and seeks uh, dialogue and peace. What kind of um, misconceptions about Hinduism have you run into in your in your work here? Well, one of the biggest misconceptions is that it's a polytheistic faith. Actually, Hinduism believes in one God, uh, and it believes that there are many different paths to that God, and different religions have uh, a different uh, path to the one true God. So that's definitely a, a misconception. Uh, and then I think there are people who don't uh, appreciate how pluralistic Hinduism is. Uh, So in my own uh, example, I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and uh, on Christmas Eve with the neighbors, we'd put out candle lights as well and celebrate Christmas, and that didn't diminish uh, our Hindu faith because Hinduism really respects the diversity of religious traditions and celebrating those. What does your own practice of Hinduism look like? Well, it's uh, celebrating uh, the major holidays. Uh, we have a major holiday, Diwali, coming up, which is uh, about the triumph of uh, good versus evil and suggests the uh, eternal optimism of the Hindu faith that ultimately uh, good and righteousness uh, will triumph in, in the world. Uh, but a lot of uh, Hinduism uh, allows for self-reflection and meditation and doesn't have to necessarily require going uh, regularly to the temple. So for me, uh, my faith is more 
on quiet reflection, of course, on major cultural holidays, uh, we celebrate them. Are there any specific issues that you're you're drawn toward working on in Congress because of your faith? Yes, uh, I think a lot of my issues and concern for climate change come uh, from my faith. Uh, Hinduism deeply believes in respecting the planet, in respecting all living beings, and understanding uh, how important the ecosystem and planet are to, uh, uh, to to civilization and to the world and to God. And of course, uh, my sense of standing up for human rights and against the war in Iraq in 2004 was influenced by my faith. In fact, uh, my run, uh, the first anti-war campaign on Iraq in 2004 was compared uh, by The Nation magazine uh, to Robert Drennan's campaign against the Vietnam War. And Robert Drennan was one of two Jesuits, uh, Jesuit priests in Congress. And so I don't think it's coincidental that you had uh, people of faith uh, running uh, these anti-war campaigns uh, and calling for uh, greater military restraint and peace. You mentioned earlier, I, I was surprised to learn that you have a very significant Catholic contingent in your district. And we also found out that you have a bunch of Catholics on your team who listen to this show. So what do you think Catholics in your district are concerned with? What are some of the issues that they're most are most pressing in their minds? I think they uh, are very concerned with what's happening on the border and uh, immigration. Uh, many of them, of course, have been inspired by uh, Pope Francis as view that uh, we need to be treating immigrants uh, humanely. Uh, we need to be treating them uh, with justice and dignity. There is a concern among the Catholic community in my district uh, against war overseas, making sure that we don't have a foreign policy, a military interventionism, and that we have greater dialogue uh, and greater peace. Uh, I think there are concerns with the Catholic uh, community on poverty and hunger and homelessness. Homelessness is a pretty big issue in my district with the rising rents. And so a lot of the uh, philanthropic activity of some of the uh, Catholic churches and, and Catholic community are dealing with uh, hunger, dealing with homelessness in our area. Do you ever feel pressure in representing such a hugely diverse faith community? I don't, and I appreciate, though, you asking it. I definitely think it's a challenge because a lot of people think Silicon Valley, Bay Area, and they don't think uh, of all the faith communities. But they call Milpitas in my district, actually, the holy city. We have a lot of strong faith communities, especially because we have uh, communities from around the world, uh, uh, heritage from around the world. So a Filipino-American community, a Vietnamese-American community, Chinese-American community, uh, the, a large Catholic church presence in uh, Milpitas and Berryessa, a large uh, presence of uh, Hindu temples, of mosques, of uh, Buddhist uh, temples, of synagogues. Uh, and so it's, it's wonderful to see all these diversity of faiths in the community. And we do a lot of interfaith events. And it, I think it makes uh, representing the district uh, all the more special. What kind of interfaith outreach does your team do? Well, it's not just my team. Almost the entire Bay Area has uh, interfaith leaders and interfaith events. So, for example, uh, Gandhi's 150th birthday is coming up on October 2nd. Uh, October 3rd, we are, are going to have a town hall celebrating that. 
and we are reaching out to Catholic leaders, we're reaching out to Muslim American leaders, we're reaching out to Jewish American leaders, to Hindu American leaders, to have that diversity uh, of the community represented. Uh, and uh, I often go to synagogues, to churches, uh, to mosques, to temples, uh, to meet the community and listen to their concerns. Speaking of Hindu leaders, so we're recording this on September 23rd. Um, and this past weekend, President Trump attended a rally with the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi. Um, it was a really uh, interesting event. Um, it was being billed as the largest uh, event for a foreign leader in United States history, 50,000 people. Um, what do you make of this friendly relationship between President Trump and Narendra Modi? Well, they, there's an importance to the U.S.-India relationship, but that relationship needs to be grounded on democratic values, on pluralism, on uh, desire for peace. And I don't think uh, President Trump, Donald Trump, represents those values. So I don't think him going to a rally uh, in Houston is going to really help him uh, with the Indian American vote, as he hopes. Eighty percent of that vote went to Hillary Clinton. Uh, the Indian American community tends to be uh, very secular, very pluralistic, uh, and the issues that uh, the community cares about are education and funding for education, college debt, uh, investment in science and technology, support for entrepreneurship, uh, support for keeping America open to immigration. Uh, these are all uh, values that are directly opposed to what Donald Trump uh, has stood for. So recently you were you were criticized by the Hindu American Foundation for joining the Congressional Pakistan Caucus and you defended your decision you stated that especially at this time in history with world leaders world leaders should really be engaged in should stand for pluralism and should engage in this kind of dialogue and stand for tolerance can you tell us a bit about what you think the challenges and rewards of this kind of dialogue are well my inspiration when i look at political leaders who uh, I consider role models. They have always been people who have striven or who have aspired to be peacemakers, whether that is President Obama in his outreach to Iran, whether it was Shimon Peres or Yitzhak Rabin, uh, whether in India's history it was uh, Gandhi himself. The world currently needs more elected representatives who are talking about dialogue or talking about peace. I have done a lot of things to strengthen the U.S.-India relationship. I believe in that. But it would be malpractice for me not to meet with uh, the Pakistani ambassador or side and listen also to their perspective and make a decision that's in the United States' interest, considering all uh, the facts and uh, making sure that the human rights of everyone uh, are respected. So we need to make sure that we are having dialogue, uh, even with those who we may disagree. And uh, that approach, I think, is what that America desperately needs and that the world desperately needs. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of what I'm sure is a, your super busy schedule, Congressman, to talk with us. We've got one final question for you that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? Well, I'll give you two answers. For a Catholic, I would say it's Pope Francis, because he's really helped to speak out on immigrant rights, on peace, on uh, environmental rights, on uh, LGBTQ rights. And so I admire him. Of course, uh, I think for me, Gandhi 
still uh, is uh, such an exceptional human being, especially given my grandfather's uh, role in the Indian independence movement. And I believe that Gandhi, though not perfect, uh, ended up inspiring Dr. King, inspired uh, Mandela. If you go to Dr. King's home, as I had the opportunity to go with, with John Lewis, he had two books there, uh, The Gandhi Reader and The Bible. And John Lewis and I did an op-ed about how uh, Gandhi's independence movement intersected with Dr. King's movement. And actually, Dr. King's movement led to the Immigration Reform Act in this country that allowed my parents to immigrate because before 1965, we had very restrictive immigration policies. I guess I'd end to just say uh, we are a nation of faith, but not one faith, many faiths. And the critical uh, aspect, I think, for progressive politicians is to respect uh, how much of a positive role faith can play uh, in our politics, but to make sure that we understand that uh, that faith uh, can come in many forms and that we really have to encourage a respect uh, and uh, a d- diversity uh, of these uh, types of uh, religious uh, commitment. Uh, that, uh, I think, is the essence of the American experiment and our founding vision. Yeah, amen to that. So, amen. St. Saint, Saint Gandhi. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us, Representative Khanna. This is a great conversation. Thank you for having me. is brought to you by Loyola University, Maryland, Master of Theological Studies, offering a rigorous and rewarding education with small classes and renowned faculty. Learn more and apply at loyola.edu slash theology. Again, that is loyola.edu slash theology. And now it's time for some housekeeping. This week, to celebrate the amazing work of women religious, America Media and the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate are highlighting six young sisters working all over the country in a variety of ministries and religious orders. And this series is called Beyond the Habit, and you can find the link in our show notes and in our Facebook group. Yeah, it's a really great video series, um, and anyone who's listened to Jesuitical knows that we love our sisters. Yes, we do. And they're incredible. Um, and we also wanted to say thank you to Nick Frega for upping his donation on Patreon. And if you would like to support the show and have access to our exclusive new newsletter, you can go to patreon.com slash American Media. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. Um, and I'll go, I'll go first this time. Um, so I have a desolation. Uh, this past week, the UN is meeting in New York, and all the talk has been about climate change. And I'm probably going to get some hate mail for this, but I have to say that, like, I find it really hard to really care about climate change, like, in the same way that I care about other issues like immigration or pro-life um, issues. Um, it's just like I, my heart's not in it. Like I can intellectually be like, yes, I accept the science and I think this is happening. But like I'm very cynical and I, I, I just like get in this train of thought where I'm like, there's no way that like the world's going to come together and solve this. And maybe I, I'm not ready to actually change the way I'm living. So like I'm 
there's there's no hope like i and as far as god is the, the source of hope in our lives like i'm just not there when it comes to climate change um and so that's like i've been thinking about that a lot this week because like there's someone like greta thunberg who's like waking up or you know giving inspiration to so many people and i feel like kind of untouched by it um and i wish i had that hope but i'm i'm not there yet so i'm just kind of like living in this like desolate cycle of like you know being like i should care about this but not i'm not there yet right, so right. I'm, when i talked to uh, father sundrup about this he's like okay like there's a seed there like you recognize that like pope francis and all your friends and <laughs> everyone else like is is prompting you to to care about this and to see how you can change your own lives and the way you can engage in in the public discourse to be helpful so you got that focus on that but i thought i don't know i i hope this doesn't like come off as like callous because i know people are suffering because of climate change but like my own in my own heart and mind like kind of in a hopeless place thank you for being vulnerable about yeah, that now hopefully gen z will save us all I, seriously <laughs> what do you have olga so i've got a consolation this week my fiance has been actively forcing me to go to more church events, speaking of caring about the world <laughs> around you. Um, and one of the events we attended this week was hosted by our church's Black Lives Matter chapter. And I was super cranky and extremely tired, and I was complaining to him the whole time. But once we were there and once the event was over, I left feeling so inspired about the work that we do here on Jesuitical, the work that I do as a writer. Um, and, you know, one of the panelists talks about what it means to be in solidarity with our faith community, what it means to be in solidarity with our international faith community. And the consolation was in having not just the fact that I w had my fiance, who is someone I gave permission to push me to be better and to attend, enter these spaces. But the consolation was also in just realizing that God is working within the desires that I have, you know, and he brought me to the space where he, you know, fueled me with this fire that I already have. And it was just a wonderful reminder to just continue to do the work that we are doing and the work that I'm doing. So that was uh, the consolation. That's so great. It's so great to have someone in your life who pushes you to do that. Yeah. Shout out. Shout out to Enoch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you want to get us out of here, Ashley? I will. Jesuitical is produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Kevin Jackson. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out to New Catholic. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura. We'll see you next week. <laughs>